And it's another week. This is Andrew Wood, Executive Director of Hope Resource Center. Thank you so much for tuning in, whether that be live at Joy 620 or you're listening to the podcast at investinghope.com, Podbeam, Google Play, iTunes, wherever podcasts are found. You can find this show where we talk about life, we talk about abortion, we talk about things that are going on here in my home state of Tennessee or around the country, around the globe, and the things that matter. Look, abortion is uh, is an atrocity that that's occurred uh, for way too long, and uh, and hopefully we are seeing uh, its days numbered, and uh, we'll see. We, we've been talking quite a bit about the case that, that's going in front of the Supreme Court this fall out of Mississippi that we think may be uh, uh, a good thing for pro-lifers. We'll see how the, the courts decide, how the, the justices decide, uh, but, but hopefully – uh, we were, we are making a dent and moving in the right direction. I want to start today with a story out of, uh, Singapore that, that's pretty amazing. And, and it points to the, uh, the progression that we've seen in technology and in the ability to protect babies, uh, that are born prematurely. Uh, so a premature baby thought to be the smallest to ever survive is finally going home after spending over a year in the hospital. Uh, this baby was born in Singapore in June of 2020. She was nearly four months early at just under 25 weeks gestation. She was a tiny preemie weighing a mere 7.5 ounces at birth, which is roughly the weight of an apple. 25 weeks gestation, and the baby survived. 7.5 ounces. Now, in this country and around the world, you can abort a baby at 25 weeks. And this baby survived, weighed as much as an apple. The mother underwent an emergency C-section after developing preeclampsia, a condition that causes dangerously high blood pressure and which can be fatal for both mother and baby. Uh, an advanced practice neonatal nurse at the National University Hospital was shocked when she saw uh, the mom for the first time. Or the baby for the first time. They said this, I was shocked, so I spoke to the professor and asked if he could believe it. She said to the Times, in my 22 years of being a nurse, I haven't seen such a small newborn baby. The parents are permanent residents of Singapore, but have been planning to return to Malaysia for the delivery, where their four-year-old son is currently living with his grandparents. But when the mom began having extreme abdominal pain, there was no choice. I didn't expect to give birth so quickly, and we were very sad that uh, the baby was born so small. Uh, but due to my condition, we didn't have a choice. We could just hope that she would continue to grow. Though babies born at nearly 25 weeks gestation have a very good chance of survival, especially even uh, if given active care, uh, this was an unusual case because of the baby's size. Her skin was almost also extremely fragile, and her lungs weren't fully developed. Even something as small as leaving a probe on her skin for too long would lead to an open sore and possible infection. Her daily care was the main crux of the matter, especially for the first two weeks of life, uh, the doctor said. We needed to innovate and find some improvised methods to deal with the baby this small because this is the first time we experienced somebody this tiny. She was so small that even the calculation for medication had to be down to the decimal points. Even something as seemingly simple as a diaper was difficult for staff, as new, newborn diapers were far too big for her. And vendors, which provided them for micro-premies, wouldn't deliver to Singapore, so the NICU staff had to create them from scratch themselves. There are some chemicals in the diaper to absorb the baby's urine, and this can't 
come into direct contact with the skin. So we had to fold and seal the edges. These are the things we had to do for her because caring for her skin is very, very important. Despite her tiny size, uh, the baby showed incredible personality from the beginning, responding when nurses spoke to her and remaining happy despite the fact uh, and despite the difficult environment. Now 14 months old, the baby still has chronic lung disease, but she weighs 14 pounds and is healthy enough to go home. The baby was just 212 grams, barely the weight of a large apple when she was delivered via C-section in June of last year. After 13 months in the neonatal intensive care unit, the baby was discharged and went home. She is likely the world's lightest baby to survive a premature birth, the hospital said. We are happy for the little fighter and her family and proud of the care provided by our team. Our best wishes to the family as she continues to grow and thrive and beat the odds every day. I mean, think about that, folks. 25 weeks and the baby is born. 7.5 ounces. Life is beautiful. I mean, it's amazing to me that the nurses, the, the doctors, the staff involved did everything they could for this child. And it's not like we're going, we're, we're saying, hey, you know, Singapore, one of the best hospitals around. I don't know much about them. But but you wouldn't list them at the top of the list. Hey, if you have something going on that, that's dire, hey, let's send somebody to Singapore. Even the family wanted to deliver their baby in Malaysia. And yet, with the technology advances that we have and the know-how from nurses and doctors and the fighting spirit of this child and, and her parents, you have one of the smallest babies premature born, prematurely born to survive. So again, don't tell me it's a blob of cells. Don't tell me it's just a clump. That's a human being that even had a personality at 25 weeks. I mean, it's amazing. Now the baby is home with his family, 14 pounds, has some lung issues, but, but all in all, the, Good enough that they were able to send the baby home and feel comfortable with that. So when we have conversations about abortion, we have conversations about whether or not it should be allowed or legal. These are the things. These are the stories that we need to tell. To, to, to simply say, and some people probably would have told this mom, hey, your baby's not going to survive. So to save your life or... Uh, you know, we may need to have an abortion or, you know, some people would argue, yeah, have a C-section, but we're not really going to do anything for the child because it's going to die anyway. And instead, these doctors and nurses rallied around and a year later, this baby's going home. So it's, it's selfish of us to, to say abortion is the answer. It's selfish of us to say, well, what kind of life would that baby have? You know, in all likelihood, the baby's not going to survive. <clears throat> so why not put it out of its misery? That's what some people would say. But instead, they fought for this child, and this child is doing well. Now, this doesn't always happen. It doesn't mean that every baby born at 25 weeks is going to be okay. It doesn't mean that every baby born at 7.5 ounces is going to be okay. But it does mean it's worth the fight. 
this story will give that other mom and dad some hope that if they had their baby prematurely, that there is some hope that baby will survive. I mean, isn't, isn't that what science and research is supposed to be about? Getting us to a place where we have hope, getting us to a place where technology is advanced enough where we, a baby that couldn't survive 20 years ago can now survive. Isn't that the hope? Isn't that where we want to be? Isn't that pro- being progressive? You would think. But instead, we have people saying, oh, no, no, you should be able to. Pro- progress is ending the life of your baby. Progress is having the right to end the life of another human being. That's progress. That's what that's what many people would say. That's not progress at all. I mean, you just think back. We used to have children in this country that would die of diarrhea because there was no medication, there was no good treatment for it. And now, very few, if any, die because of that. We used to have people that would die because they got a blister on their foot. And because of the lack of medication and lack of scientific advancement, they would die because of a blister on their foot got infected. And now... We get blisters all the time. And, and and if I get a blister on my hand or on my foot, I'm not thinking, oh, I'm going to die. This is it. It's over for me. Why? Because we've advanced in science and technology. But yet for some reason, when it comes to life, when it comes to abortion, there's a segment of the population that doesn't see that advancement in technology to be a a good thing. Even though we have a, an ability to save the life of that child, even though we have an ability to to have that child adopted, even though we have the ability of the foster care system, even though we have the ability to nurture and take care of that child, we have a segment of the population that argue that child has no right to life. Even though with the advancements we've seen, we can now watch a baby grow inside the womb. Even though with the advancements we have seen, we can now pretty much get a selfie of a baby before they're born. You see, we, we have no doubt what it is. Yet we have a segment of the population that would argue, well, my right says I can end the life of that child. Yeah, that argument doesn't work anymore. That argument might have worked in the 70s, might have, but it certainly doesn't work in 2021. Yet, here we are. And so when I see these stories, yes, this is anecdotal. Yes, this is one story of many. But it's a story that needs to be told. It's a story about a baby that was fought for. It's a story about nurses and doctors that that got innovative and created their own diapers, that, that cared about the skin of a child that, that was very fragile. It's a story of a mom and dad doing everything they can to take care of their child. You see, that's a story that deserves to be told. And it points to the preciousness of life. 
And it points to how amazing science has become. This is what I don't understand. A lot of the folks that stand in favor of abortion claim that the other side is anti-science when it comes to a number of different things. Yet, when it comes to the science that allows us to see a child, the science that allows us to protect a child, the science that allows us to save a child, they say, oh, that science doesn't matter because you have your rights as a woman to end the life of that child. Instead, they should be celebrating the science that has allowed us to protect the most vulnerable among us. We should be hearing story after story on the nightly news of of the science, the, the technology advancement that has allowed us to see a baby be born at seven and a half ounces and, and survive. How amazing is that? Yet, they hide the science because they know that science and ultrasound and that technology will hurt their narrative a narrative that makes them billions of dollars in the abortion industry. And so here we are. And so I hope stories like this will continue. I hope we continue to see the advancement of technology that allows us to protect a baby, that allows us to to see a mom and dad take their baby home, even though it may be a year later. And if that can happen in Singapore, it can happen... In this country, it can happen all over the world. And I know there's stories that haven't been told where this has happened. And so it's worth fighting for. It's worth protecting that child. It's crazy to me to think that child weighed as much as an apple. And now weighs 14 pounds a year later. And surviving. You see, these stories are important. Life is a gift and it is precious. And it doesn't matter what anyone says otherwise. That is the truth. And it should be fought for and it should be protected. And that's why we talk about it every week. We'll talk more when we come back. As we continue the conversation today, there's a a great piece over at National Review concerning the uh, looming case in front of the Supreme Court out of Mississippi. And I know I've talked about that a lot, but we're going to talk about it a lot until the decision is made. So 45 years ago, Justice Byron White lamented in his dissent in Planned Parenthood versus Danforth in 1976 that the court's concoction of a supposed constitutional right to abortion meant that the court was operating both as, quote, the country's continuous constitutional convention and also it's ex officio medical board with powers to approve or disapprove medical and operative practices and standards on abortion throughout the U.S. End quote. A ruling yesterday by a federal district court in Indiana illustrates that Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey would forever keep the federal judiciary and ultimate, ultimately the court in those illegitimate and unworkable roles. It thus uh, says the compelling legal arguments why the court should overturn Roe and Casey in its decision next term in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. In her 158-page opinion in Whole Woman's Health Alliance versus Rakita, Judge Sarah Evans Barker confronted a global assault on the constitutionality of Indiana's statutory and regulatory restrictions on abortion. 
Bark rule, Barker ruled against the constitutionality of several sets of restrictions and in favor of the constitutionality of others. For present purposes, rather than contest her conclusion, I'll simply highlight that her analysis shows how unstable and malleable the Roe-Casey framework is. A few examples. Barker rules that Indiana's law enacted in 1973 that allows only physicians to perform abortions is unconstitutional with respect to medication abortions. She dismisses the court's observation in a 1997 case that its prior cases, quote, left no doubt that to ensure the safety of the abortion procedure, the states may mandate that only physicians perform abortions, end quote. And she insisted uh, to apply only she insisted that it applies only to challenges to the legislative purpose because the reach, quote, the reach of Indiana's physician only statute is substantially broader than Montana's statute, end quote. And the nature of abortion care has evolved substantially in the years since. Plaintiff's claim clearly is not foreclosed. Uh, and, and so they go further. Barker also rules that Indiana's requirement that second trimester abortions be performed in a hospital or an ambulatory outpatient surgical center is unconstitutional. Here, too, she sidesteps Supreme Court precedent uh, from 1983 that was handed down almost 40 years ago as, quote, medical advancements in administrating uh, administering second trimester abortions have developed substantially, end quote, since then. Now, now, so they're talking about science advancing and technology advancing, allowing them to, to have abortions without doctors overseeing it, without medical professionals overseeing it. Now, they don't talk about scientific advancement when it comes to lives being saved. Barker goes further. Barker forbids an informed consent provision that requires that the woman seeking abortion be advised that, quote, human physical life begins when a human ovum is fertilized by a human sperm, end quote. She states that she, quote, shares plaintiff's concern that this statement is an assertion about the moral or ethical personhood of a fetus. And she finds superficial that the state's efforts to neutralize the importance or the import of this statement by declaring it medically accurate, scientifically uncontroversial, and not ideologically charged, end quote. As Barker notes, three decades after Casey, the elementary question whether applying the, quote, undue burden standard involves a balancing of benefits and its burdens is a question on which it appears that a split among the circuits is developing. She applies Seventh Circuit precedent holding that it does. Barker's analysis, I'll emphasize, is not entirely one-sided. And it's no criticism of Barker, a Reagan appointee, as it happens, to note that the undue burden standard is so uh, subjective that it inevitably requires her to indulge overtly or covertly her policy preferences. In Barker's case, those policy preferences aren't difficult to detect. Citing Roe, Barker asserts that the Constitution, quote, includes in poignant judicial parlance uh, the freedom from state-required motherhood, end quote. And she several times states that abortion procedures, quote, empty the contents of the uterus, end quote. In one large sense, the only thing that is extraordinary about Barker's ruling is how ordinary it is. Citing only cases from the last five years, law professors Mary Ann Glendon and Carter Sneed observe in their excellent brief in Dobbs. It says this, because of the confusion, uh, lower courts have even struck down laws similar to laws this court has already upheld. See Planned Parenthood of Indiana and Kentucky. Um, granted, let's see, the Seventh Circuit granted judgment, vacated, and then they go further. Planned Parenthood, and they keep they keep citing different cases. This is this is important. They're citing cases from the last five years that that matter to us, and they go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And one court does one thing, and the other court 
does another. For this and other reasons, the undue burden standard leaves states' legislatures with little guidance as to what types of restrictions will be deemed valid and would compel the court to operate in uh, forever as the nation's ex officio medical board on abortion. So, yeah, that that's where we are when it comes to the courts. And then we can go further at what happened in Indiana. I think it's important to look at that. But but ultimately, the judge in Indiana is simply relying on abortion activists. Again, Judge Sarah Evans Barker has issued a permanent injunction against several pro-life laws in Indiana, including a provision that required women to consult with a physician in person prior to obtaining chemical abortion drugs. During the COVID-19 pandemic, abortion providers began pushing to relax FDA safety regulations that had previously required doctors to prescribe the two drugs for a chemical abortion at an in-person appointment. After a long series of court fights, including a stop at the Supreme Court where the justices affirmed the permissibility of the FDA safety standards, the FDA under the Biden administration relaxed the policy and permitted women to begin obtaining chemical abortion drugs via telemedicine appointments. In response, a number of states have enacted their own safety requirements, prohibiting doctors from prescribing chemical abortion drugs without first examining a patient in person. Unsurprisingly, abortion right groups have sued to block such policies, and in Indiana, they've scored a victory. Citing prominent abortionist and, and abortion advocate Dr. Daniel Grossman, as well as abortion advocacy group the American College of uh, Obstetricians and Gynecologists, Judge Barker asserted that prescribing abortion pills via telemedicine is safe and would increase access to abortion for women who do not live near an abortion clinic. Barker again cited these sources in addition to Planned Parenthood and other abortion clinic officials to establish that in-person examination not necessary before determining whether to prescribe abortion pills and that such regulations impose a unique burden on low-income women. The judge also blocked Indiana's requirement that doctors inform women that human life begins at fertilization. Uh, even though that statement is truthful, she said plaintiffs again contend that this statement is, the, is at best misleading, conflating a religious or ideological view of when life begins with one sounding in science. <laughs> That's amazing. So it's a true statement. It's a true statement by science standards. Yet this judge says, yeah, I agree with the plaintiffs. I agree with the abortion industry that says this is also making a moral point. Even though the science says it's a true statement. While Barker also struck down a state provision requiring abortions later in pregnancy to be performed at the hospital, she did uphold the state's ultrasound requirement, as well as its policy requiring the counseling being offered only by physicians or advanced clinicians. So what this shows is the case in 1973, the Roe v. Wade case, is a debacle. That's what this shows. Because judges all across the board, and, and this is why it's important when we talk about, oh, well, if you just elect this guy or this girl, they will appoint conservative judges. This particular judge was appointed by who? Ronald Reagan. Yeah, appointed by Ronald Reagan. And listen to the nonsense that she's saying. And only taking the word of abortion advocates. And then saying, although... Life begins at fertilization. Life begins at conception. Although science says that is true, we think what you're trying to, to make is a moral statement. So we're going to not listen to that. Even though the science says what you're saying is, is, is accurate and true. 
So now they're at a point where they're saying, yeah, the science may say it's true, but but you're manipulating people by telling them the science. So because of that, we're going to dismiss what you're saying. But but who's anti-science here? Yeah, we'll be back. For the next three weeks, I went a-hunting them nightclubs looking for a place to play. Well, I thought my picking would set them on fire, but nobody wanted to hire a guitar man. As we continue the conversation, we're looking at things that are happening around the country. (laughs) Excuse me. And there's some more news when it comes to, you know, the interesting thing about the abortion debate back and forth is uh, the abortion industry, they want you to pay for abortions, whether you're pro-life or pro-choice. They want you to pay for it. They want more abortions. They want abortion on demand. They want they want it easier to get an abortion. So they want to be able to mail pills to the to people in their mailboxes without seeing an actual uh, doctor in person. Uh, they they also want non medical professionals to provide the abortions. Now, how is if you went to get your ACL replaced, would you want a a trained person, even though they're not a medical professional? To perform that procedure, or would you want a medical professional to perform that procedure? Of course, you would want a medical professional. Yet they argue, hey, anybody can do it. We can ship the pills in the mail, and if you need a surgery, or if you need, you know, something else, or if you need an ultrasound, look, we can teach anybody to do that. They don't have to be a medical professional. Well, that's that's nonsense. And now abortion advocates are making a push to force pro-life doctors and medical professionals to partake in abortions against their own conscience. While pro-abortion groups such as the Florida Interfaith Coalition for Reproductive Health and Justice claim a woman's so-called right to abortion is based on her, quote, personal values, they fail to see the hypocrisy in their unwillingness to support medical professionals who don't want to participate in abortion based on their own, quote, personal values. According to data compiled by the Pro-Abortion Guttmacher Institute, 46 states allow some health care providers to opt out of committing abortions. This includes 44 states that allow entire health care institutions to refuse to commit abortions. Along with federal laws, including 1973 church amendments that prevent hospitals from discriminating against conscious objectors, most medical professionals are currently able to practice medicine based on their own moral and religious beliefs including the belief that abortion is not health care. About 85% of OBs do not commit abortions, and the fact that doctors won't participate in abortion shines a very negative light on the abortion industry's claim that it is basic health care. Hear that again. 85% of OBGYNs do not commit abortions. Yet the abortion industry says that it's a woman's right, and it is basic health care. Then why... Do 85% of OBs not perform it? This profitable industry wants to put an end to that by outlawing conscious objection rights for medical professionals and increasing abortion training in medical schools. Recently, the Biden-Harris Department of Justice dropped a case against the University of Vermont Medical Center, which had allegedly forced multiple medical professionals to participate in abortions. At least 10 nurses were reportedly forced to partake in about 20 abortions against their will. One nurse was so traumatized after she was tricked into entering the operating room under false pretenses and then threatened with job loss if she didn't stay that she quit her job and her career as an OR nurse. The hospital denied any wrongdoing. In February of this year, New Mexico Governor Michelle Grisham signed a law that removed conscious protections from pro-life medical workers in the state. There is concern that quality doctors will leave New Mexico over that new law, worsening the state's already existing doctor shortage. 
In 2019, after the Trump administration expanded conscious protections for medical workers, the nation's largest abortion business, Planned Parenthood, spoke out against such protections. Quote, in allowing doctors, nurses, and even receptionists to deny care to patients, the Trump-Pence administration is providing legal cover for discrimination, end quote. Said then-president, uh, that was a quote from the, the former president of Planned Parenthood, Lena Wynn. In other words, her argument is that it is discriminatory to refuse participation in an elective procedure to kill a preborn child, but forcing doctors to kill preborn children is not discriminatory. Incidentally, many, many medical professionals have stated that abortion is never medically necessary. The push to force medical professionals to participate in abortions has begun to infiltrate medical schools where the abortion industry hopes to train all doctors to view abortion as health care. Austin Clark was a fourth-year medical student at the University of Louisville School of Medicine set to graduate in 2021. But the school dismissed him in July 2020 following his participation in the school's pro-life group. Clark filed a lawsuit against the school for discriminating against him for his pro-life beliefs. As it turns out, the University of Louisville School of Medicine is facing calls for an investigation, according to Students for Life America, for its connection to local abortion business EMW's Women's Surgical Center. Dr. Ernest Marshall owns the facility and has been professor at the University Medical School for 40 years. The, co the college speaks openly about training medical students to commit abortions through the Ryan Residency, a program set up to provide formal training in contra contraception, family planning, and medical surgical pregnancy termination. That's abortion, folks. It doesn't take a stretch of the uh, imagination to see that pro-life students would be met with some hostility. This turns all doctors into abortionists mentality is not just happening in the U.S. The same battle is being waged in Canada as abortion enthusiasts complain that a doctor's refusal to commit abortions violates a woman's human rights. Pro-abortion writer Tracy Lindman wrote, quote, what's clear is that conscience, let's see, that, that a conscientious objection in Canada and elsewhere isn't purely a question of religious or moral convictions. Instead, it is wrapped up in doctor ego and discrimination in medicine. Barriers to adequate medical care have serious documented health consequences, yet we can't seem to shake the idea that doctors' conscious rights and patients' human rights are equal and can be balanced. Now, I'm not going to continue to read, but think about that. It's the same thing that happens when, when somebody gets mad because a, a baker won't bake them a cake. You know, the, the, the baker will say, look, I don't provide cakes to celebrate things that go against my values. <clears throat> and then that baker is sued. We've seen it over and over in Colorado. One baker in particular, he keeps being sued. Even though there are other bakers right down the road that would be happy to bake them a cake. They want him to bake it. Him. They don't care that they can go somewhere else. They're looking for a court case. And so when it comes to abortion, even though there are abortion clinics in communities, especially in cities like Louisville and other places. And even though the majority of OBs do not provide abortions and have no desire to provide abortions, 85% of them, even though these people can go anywhere they want at an abortion clinic and get the abortion that they, that they desire, or right now they can get the abortion pill sent to them in the mail. What are they doing? They are attacking those that simply say, Look, I'm not going to perform an abortion. It goes against my values. It goes against who I am. It goes against my my religious values, my moral values, and I'm objecting to it. And you've seen people lose their job over it. 
you, you've seen people be kicked out of medical school for it. I don't know. It looks like to me if 85% of OBGYNs aren't performing abortions, that should tell you something. Even in, in today's society and culture where abortion seems to be prevalent and normalized and okay with a lot of people. Even in, in a very progressive age that we live in. Are you surprised that 85% of OBGYNs do not perform abortions? You would think 100% of them would perform abortions, wouldn't you? Or at least half of them. But no, 85% do not perform abortions. That should tell us something. Yet, they want you to believe that, well, that, that number doesn't mean anything. And they want to force you to provide abortions. Think about that. A patient literally can go to any Planned Parenthood in the country. They can go to any abortion clinic in the country and get the, the desired outcome they want. Or they can go visit the, what, <clears throat> the 15% of OBs that provide abortions. And instead, what the, the abortion industry is doing is saying, no, we want all doctors to perform them. We want all nurses to have to sit in there and watch that and participate. We want all nurse practitioners to have to sit in there and watch and participate. We want all OBs, everybody. We want everybody to have to participate. We don't care if they want to do it or not. They're blocking basic medical care from women, and we think they should do it whether they like it or not. And if they don't want to do it, they should be fined and lose their job. They should be kicked out of medical school. Now, who's discriminating here? You see, the argument isn't there are no abortion clinics anywhere. There's nowhere for them to get an abortion, so you have to step up and do this. That's not the argument. The argument is, yeah, we, we just want you to do it. We don't agree with your values. We don't agree with your morals. We don't agree with your objections. You should have to do it. It's the same thing when it comes to the Hyde Amendment. It's the same thing when it comes to taxpayer-funded abortion. We don't care if you agree with abortion or not. You should pay for it. Yet I'm the, I'm the nut job. I'm the crazy person. Folks, this, this is just logical. The argument should end after you see the stat that 85% of OBGYNs do not perform abortions. We shouldn't have to talk anymore. If it was such basic health care, why are not the rest of those OBs doing it? Why? Just basic health care. It doesn't have any lasting ramifications. It doesn't, it doesn't provide any trauma to that medical staff because it's just basic health care. No, because all those things aren't true. It's not just basic health care. It is traumatic. And the bulk of OBGYNs have no desire to perform it. Yet, when you, when you read articles and when you see uh, interviews on, on cable news outlets, you don't hear from those 85%. You're going to hear from the 15% that are okay with it and saying it's not enough. We need more abortions. We need people to pay for it. We need to relax restrictions and, and have pills sent to people in the mail. They don't need to see anybody in person. That's nonsense. 
We'll be back. As we finish up today, I wanted to alert you to some happenings at, at Hope coming up. Uh, we have our Run with Hope September 5th through 11th. We're going to do it the same way we did it last year. It's a virtual run. Uh, so you can run anytime the week of September 5th through the 11th. Support Hope and Life by completing a 5K or 10K anytime and anywhere the week of September 5th and 11th. So that means that we're not all meeting up together and running. There's not a, uh, anything like that. All You, you just got to pick your route. Go run, go run the 5K, run the 10K, post your time, and then we'll have prizes from there. Upon registering, you will be able to opt out or opt in to text or email notifications. Follow these instructions, and you'll be able to text or email your timing results upon completing your run. Only registered participants who send in their results will be qualified for prizes. All registered participants will receive a shirt and a goodie bag, and the shirt's pretty awesome. It's a hoodie, long-sleeve hoodie that we think you'll like. Uh, the Hope 5K for registration is $25. Uh, the 10K is also $25. If you have a group, you can get discounted pricing. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. And so, uh, 25 per participant. Only registered participants will receive a shirt and a goodie bag and be qualified for prizes. If you have a team of 10 or more, it's $20 per participant. Uh, and if competing as a team, the team captain will submit the total mileage for the team in order to be eligible for team prizes. Uh, of course, this all goes to uh, support Hope Resource Center, and our mission is to empower healthy choices for life by providing compassionate, holistic, reproductive health care. Uh, you can join us in reaching our goal of $20,000, become an individual fundraiser when you register to participate in the race, or create a fundraising page event uh, even if you aren't participating in the race. So even if you're not participating, you can help us fundraise. Uh, each participant will receive a long-sleeve T-shirt, uh, you can choose your size at registration. Packet pickup. While this race is not in person, we will still provide packets, including shirts, coupons, additional giveaways, and more. Participants can pick up their packets, shirts, anytime August 30th through September 3rd at our office, 2700 Painter Avenue. If you would like your packet shipped, please add on the shipping fee before checkout. Prizes will be awarded to first, second, and third place winners, both the 5K and 10K options. So there's a lot happening, and that's going to be a fun time. We, of course, want to thank our sponsors, uh, Shoreline Church, uh, Bo and Aaron Sanford, and the Boyd Foundation. Uh, we're grateful for those that, that help make these things possible. So it's going to be a fun time. We encourage you to participate. You get a great shirt. Uh, we're also doing beanies. I didn't say that, but we're doing beanies this year. Toboggans is what I call them. Uh, so you'll get a shirt, a toboggan coupons, gifts, and then if you win, if you're, you'll get prizes that way. If you have a, a large team, if y'all enter the most miles, whatever that looks like, you'll, you can win prizes that way as well. And then even if you don't want to run or walk, you can fundraise for us. And we would certainly appreciate that and appreciate your support. There's a lot of work that goes on in a nonprofit ministry and none of that would be possible without partners like you that, that support and donate funds to make our work possible. So all the patients that we'll see today, tomorrow, and the rest of the week, and the rest of the year, the only way we're able to see them, the only way we're able to provide for them is because you decide to give. And so you can go to investinghope.com, click the donate button, and just simply give, or you can go to investinghope.com backslash events, and you can sign up for the race, and we would certainly appreciate that. We also have a golf tournament coming up in October. We'll be talking more about that as we get closer. Uh, but it's going to be a fun time. 
I will say that next week I'm going to be out of town. I'm going to be in San Antonio, Texas at a conference meeting with pregnancy centers from all over the country. And so uh, it'll be a great time to, to reflect and to talk to other folks about the work that they're doing, to talk about how we can be better at Hope and how we can better serve patients in our area and around this country. Uh, we would appreciate your prayers. There's a lot of work uh, that still need to be done as we long for the day that Roe v. Wade would be uh, – uh, would be a, a thing of the past. That's ultimately what we want. And so uh, we pray for that day, and we hope that day is sooner rather than later. Uh, so we'd appreciate your prayers. Uh, pray for the pregnancy centers that are doing great work all over the country, and uh, and pray for us as we meet together next week there in San Antonio, Texas. And so if you have any questions, if you have any concerns, or if you want to learn more about Hope Resource Center, you can do that at investinghope.com. We would certainly welcome that. If you want to listen to this show more often, you can listen to the podcast at investinghope.com, Google Play, Apple iTunes, wherever podcasts are found. We are grateful that you partner with us, that you stand with us for life, because life is a gift and it's worth fighting for. And because of that, We'll talk to you next time. Thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you soon.